Women in Architecture, a podcast by SB Architects. I'm your host, Jeanette Hoffman. Throughout this series, I'll be delving deeper into what it means to be a woman in architecture. Today's guest is Tanya Illenfeld, CEO and founder of Eat Enablers. Tanya is a pragmatic visionary with more than 23 years of experience leading and innovating for award-winning practices in the UK and Australia. Including almost 13 years with Grimshaw London, she is on a mission to make our built environment more responsible for its impact and more responsive to human and environmental needs. Tanya's passion as an architect, entrepreneur, and author are the relentless pursuit of effective leadership, design excellence, developing others, and changing who gets to innovate. Tanya led the team on the visionary Heathrow expansion project in her previous role as associate principal at Grimshaw, where she spent almost 13 years. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I love what you're setting out to do with this. I really do. I really love the idea of driving the narrative and really changing the conversation. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. We need we need women like you on this podcast to help us do that. Um, we're really excited to have you on today because you have a lot to share, not just in um, specifically the architecture design side of things, but also really the leadership and how to run a business and be um, a good partner in business. So we we're excited to have that story because we haven't had that yet. And I think that your insight's going to really sort of shed some light for us. Um, so I've gotten to know you just a little bit, but we'll pretend like no one on this podcast has because they haven't. Um, <laughs> but I would just love to hear a little bit about you. Tell me, um, you know, what you do on a day-to-day basis, kind of what brought you to architecture? How'd you get sort of started in your career? And then sort of what made you shift gears a little bit? All right. Well, yeah, I mean, back back when I decided to study architecture, I think just for a very long time, I was I was just in love with this idea of what could I use that mixes science and art and creativity, kind of blending all of that. And architecture just seemed to be the most natural uh, solution to that, if you if you like. And then I remember going to a, an open day at um, Melbourne University. So I'm I'm Australian. Um, so I went to an open day and there was this very charismatic uh, professor who was head of architecture. And he said, you know, well, he was asking me questions around, you know, what what do I like to study and and what am I what subjects am I good at kind of thing. And I was explaining and he says, oh, this this course is for you. This course is just absolutely for you. <laughs> and I thought, well, if you say so, it must be. It must be true. Um, right? Yes, it must be true. But my my mom actually wanted me to be a teacher. And I thought, no, no, no chance I can do that. I don't have the patience for that. And my my teacher wanted me to be an engineer. And I think there's something around the fact that others wanted me to do one thing. It's like, no, 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 I need to do my own. I need to create my own path. So I think very early on, I've been somebody who needs to create my own path. Um, and I did fall in love with architecture the moment I was studying it. And like, like every good Australian uh, to travel, I did my eight months traveling around Europe in between uh, the course where there was a year out. So we had to you know do six months worth of work. And travel and then I fell in love with Europe when I came to to Europe and so many years later I ended up was in fact 16 years ago I moved to London from Melbourne so yeah I think my career started uh, probably quite traditionally in terms of uh, graduating and moving into a small practice at the time in in Melbourne 
And, um, but probably what was unusual was that I was working on small scale residential projects at the same time as um, having a look into some urban design, large scale master plans. And I loved the play between those two scales. But the fact that I was working at urban, like doing some urban design work, but not really understanding how to create and craft the architecture kind of left me in a bit of a, in a bit of a bind because I was doing really small scale uh, residential extensions and, and things like this at the same time as doing this large scale. And there was like the, this gap in the middle. of Right. The well, space in between of those two things is quite big, it's right? It's vast. It's vast. But I love that I had this kind of inkling about, well, this is how you craft and this is like, this is what you I taught at university so I was playing with all the things I was I was you know that I had been taught uh to do but at the same time I had this view into but there's a bigger thing that architects can do they can mark they can really plan for the future they can really shape cities you know that's exciting but I'm not quite ready for it yet uh so I went on a bit of a path to try and find how I could fill that gap in my my knowledge and my experience sure. and it eventually led me to London and I was really by the time I came to London, I was really craving larger scale projects because by that point I had completed larger residential projects and also this urban design work. But still there was I was thinking it was going to be a commercial uh, project that would be like the, the key missing link uh, that would be the middle ground, if you like. Uh, but then I came to to Grimshaw and Grimshaw London and their main focus is transport infrastructure. Now, as an Australian uh, this was more than uh, 16 years ago, there wasn't a lot of transport infrastructure work going on at all. There is now, but that's been relatively recent. So um, yeah, so I got this this uh, opportunity to work in transport infrastructure and fell in love, fell in love with that. So I think, and, and really just generally speaking, the projects just got bigger and more complex over time. And I was drawn to those, uh, drawn to those challenges. But equally, having said that, I got to a point on a project where, you know, leading a team of 100, like an amazing team, an incredible client, we had gone through this really grueling year. Um, I mean, there'd been many grueling years before, but this one in in particular was probably the toughest, most definitely the toughest. And we were in one of these town hall type events where, you know, we were hoping to be congratulated for the work that we had done because we had made these incredible achievements. And we were, but at the same time, we were sort of told half jokingly, because you did such an amazing job, we're gonna do it all again next year. And it was this idea of having to repeat that grueling year that sent shivers down my spine, honestly. And my reaction shocked me and I didn't quite know what to do with Mm. my reaction. Cause I suddenly thought, no, I I can't enter. I can't, I can't do that again to myself, my team. Uh, But I don't know what the next move is, but it's not, I need to do something to shift um, what's happening in 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 how you lead projects? And I didn't feel like that position that I was in, even though it was a leadership position, even though I've got a lot of credibility within the practice because of the projects I was leading, I didn't feel like I could shift anything from there because the problem felt bigger than a project. Um, so I went on another bit of a journey, a bit of a path to kind of find, well, what can I do? I'm just one person but I've got some experience and I want to find a way to shift uh, shift gears in this industry because it, uh, no one should feel like I felt that day. That's basically what yeah. I decided. Um, and it was a bizarre feeling, I have to tell you, but it has led me on a path, which um, means I now have my own business. I don't want to run an architectural practice, so it's not an architectural practice, 
But I realize now that leadership is where I think we can unlock and change things in the industry for the better. And I realize, realize that that is one of my strengths. So I decided, well, leadership is my focus, but I needed some credibility outside of an architectural practice. So I decided to write a book as a means to help gain some credibility. And here I am now. Yeah, I guess you've invited me on, on here because I've written a book. Um, and yeah, so it is, it is creating opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise had to find my voice and to get that voice out there and to try and shift things. Yeah. So that's a bit of a backstory. What do you think gave you other than the feeling being terrifying? Cause I can, I, I understand that. I think we can all relate to that, but being honest with ourselves and having the courage to do something about that fear, what do you think gave you? What did you pull from to, to just sort of listen to yourself, listen to your gut, take it as truth and under, and be like, you know what, my body, my brain, my heart is telling me this isn't right. What, what gave you the confidence to just sort of listen? Cause I think that's I think, hard. Yeah. I think that I'm somebody, I don't want to live with any kind of regrets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought, whilst I don't have any regrets for the year that we've just had, even if it was grueling and all these things. Right learned last I have no regrets with that but I at the same time I cannot repeat that I don't want to repeat that and so that was just such a strong feeling that I couldn't ignore it um and at, at the same time I thought I can't imagine just stepping into another architectural practice because that's not the that's not the answer it needs to be stepping outside of architectural practice which and you know a lot of my colleagues and my my friends were saying to me well geez that's bold what what are you so what what is it what's next yeah and I think that's the thing when you've been trained as an architect you think well I'm an architect so therefore I go and work in artificial practice there isn't anything else is there um and so it is funny that I I am the more conversations I'm having now people are sort of starting to open their eyes to actually architecture is one of those amazing degrees where you are you're taught so many design is one of the things you're taught but if you really reflect back on what you have been trained to do, you could really broaden out what you end up doing, not just be in an architectural practice and, and design uh, or wait for the opportunity to design. Because there's a lot of people that aren't designing. They they feel like they can and they should, but they're not given the opportunities because actually that's almost a rare thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that I, I hope that I can inspire, if I'm successful in what I'm doing, I hope I can inspire architects to say, okay, well, I've got this training, but really, ultimately, I can decide where I take that. Yeah, I mean, talking to you, it, it immediately opened my eyes to the fact that I think in school, we do sort of, maybe not even on purpose, you know, subconsciously or consciously learn that architecture is really sort of one track minded, even though mm-hmm. that we're super creative people. We use both sides of our brains. Um, we we do architecture, right? We work at a firm. We we design. That's architecture. But it's inspiring just to hear you say there's so many other ways to use what we've learned, and it's so true. Um, and it is inspiring, absolutely. Do you think that your book helped you sort of discover what that next step was? I know that you said you did it for cred, which I, by the way, I love because I'm like. Well, if I ever need street cred, I'm just going to write a book. I was telling my husband about our story and I was like, Hayden, I'm going to write a book next year. You Absolutely. know, like, I want street cred. I'm going to write a book. Tanya did it. We can do it. <laughs> and I also love the fact that my kids say architects. Oh yeah. They write books too. That's, they what, write they books. That's what they do. So, um, yeah. And I think that, that I, again, I didn't really set out to write a book. I set out to find what it is I should be doing. And, um, I decided that I could run my own business because part of the stepping stone had been that I, I went via a digital firm 
that had really planted a seed in me that I could run my own business because they saw something in me. And in fact, that's probably what I was craving this whole time. Somebody's just saying, we believe in you. So just go and do. I think you, you, you need that from the people around you. And if you don't have it, then go and seek it out because people, um, you, you need that. There's no, there's no question about it. So, um, and then I surrounded my, knowing that I was going to start my own business thinking, okay, I've got, I've got the understanding about leadership, but I don't know how to start a business. That's completely different. I thought, okay, I need to surround myself with some people who really know how to run a business. It just so happened to be that I surrounded myself by female business owners, which was amazing. Uh, and then my, my business coach, um, she was writing a book Now she had taken like three or four years is to write her book and I think she was then wanting to really declare it in the group so that she would get it done so we were some sort of accountability for her so she brought some people in that were helping her to write a book and so then that planted the seed well actually I'm trying I'm finding my voice I'm trying to map out what it is that I um I can really offer in terms of what what the industry needs to do what I can bring to it okay. and it just naturally fell into like once I started mapping it out that like, this is a book and initially I was thinking, okay, well, this might just be a book I gift to potential clients. But then I thought as I'm mapping this out, but others, like I would have needed something like this when I was going through those challenging moments in, in, in projects. So why wouldn't I just make this a book that's accessible? Um, yeah. And so it kind of just went from so it there. It sort of started for yourself and then became a much yes, bigger. Yes, very selfishly. Yes. Right, but it became, so sort of finding yourself to sort of, finding some answers to becoming sort of a guidebook, which is, I mean, that's incredible. Um, you talked about some of the people you interviewed for your book that you felt sort of helped with your street cred. Can you tell us about who that was and how you kind of came to bring them in? Definitely, definitely. Because initially when I mapped out this blueprint um, for lead, like what does, what does a, a, a good setup for a project really look like? And what does, the leadership team really need to do. So I had mapped all that out and I could see that, okay, that I'm reading lots of leadership books and project management. And I could see that this wasn't mapped out in this way that I'm mapping it out. So therefore it's, it, it is something new, but therefore it might be just something that I think is right. And, you know, I, I would feel better if I could have others around me that I truly, truly respect that could be a sounding board for, for these ideas. Cause maybe they are just a bit out there. I don't know. So yeah, I reached out to um, a few of the leaders who I had had the privilege of working with over the years. And I didn't have anything more than LinkedIn details for some of them, but I reached out and said, look, I really, really respect you as a leader. And I've got this crazy idea to write a book and I would just love it if you could be a sounding board for, for these ideas, because you know I would hope that this is a really useful book um, that go, that lives on and has a, has a meaning, has some purpose. Uh, and they, uh, to, to, to my surprise, they instantly wrote back and said, yeah, of course. Uh, I think some of them maybe didn't think I was going to carry through and really write the book. They, you know, because I think a lot of people say they're going to write a book and, and make steps initially. But then it, it admittedly does get tougher. Like the first few drafts are kind of easy. You get it down. And I didn't write it from start to finish. It wasn't a linear process because I thought, well, running a project isn't linear either. So right, I'm right. writing it in, in, you know, according to what I'm inspired to write about today. Um, and and yeah, and so the, these these people were amazing that they gave up their time to to um, listen to my ideas and not all of them they were agreeing with, but they were the bouncing and the challenge and all of that was part of it. 
uh, and definitely improved what I what I ended up putting down into into the book. Uh, and really, the final final version of the book was the hardest because when you know that has to go out there, and then that's it. It's in print, and someone can then quote you on it. <laughs> right. I feel like yeah. that's probably when you're tapping back into that sort of firm mentality where it's hard to put your pencil down. You know, hard to know when this is good enough. Might not be perfect in my mind, but it's still perfect in general. Yeah, I think that that's. Yeah, sure and then I, that, I really can't. Ex- I can't think about how I've never. I've never written a book, so I'm. I can't imagine how hard that would be. But I would imagine that's a pretty difficult part of it. But you know, at the same time, I was thinking to myself, but we deliver. We as architects deliver buildings. If we can deliver a building, we can deliver a book. We can deliver a book. No one's going to die. That's the good thing about reading a book. So there's a little less liability in that case. But <laughs> yeah. So we can deliver a book. And then really uh, after I delivered the book, it's like, well, now I've delivered a book. Now I can do these other things. So in a way that's it, it yeah. is a good thing to stretch yourself and do something, but look at all the amazing things you've done before. And I don't think we give ourselves enough credit about what we've already done before. Even if it hasn't been fully acknowledged, we know what we've done. It gave yeah. you that time for reflection, which is super important. And you're right. We don't take enough time as leaders or as architect or as women to sort of take a step back and see the bigger picture of what's been accomplished. Um, You talked about reaching out to your friends and I think it's interesting, you said everyone responded to you. And I've even noticed on this podcast, I just wanna touch on it because I think it's so incredible and it's important to note. I think it's always surprising to me when Ashley or myself have reached out to different women in our field and just been like, I saw um, one of our, next people coming up on our podcast is hopefully a speaker from the ND Confab in Austin. And we just reached out to her through LinkedIn and immediately she was flattered and honored and wanted to come speak. And I think that's also part of sort of this knowledge sharing network that as women, as leaders, I'm sure you can relate to that. It's important to just ask. Sometimes we don't have the confidence to just ask and people love to share their knowledge People, so a lot of this information is out there. We're just not um, going for it. Maybe just taking the time to just ask because I would think, and maybe I'm wrong, nine times out of 10, if not more, someone's going to go, Absolutely. You want me to share some knowledge? I'd be happy to, which I feel like, I mean, you can speak to this. It, that seems like a very big part of leadership is sort of just going out on a whim, maybe stepping out of your comfort zone and asking some people for some advice, like you did with your book. Yeah, I think that this is, I talk a lot about courageous leadership. And I know when I I mentioned that term, people just like immediately assume, I mean, some sort of macho, egocentric leadership, but actually, I mean, the exact opposite of that. I I think being courageous is when you can, you can step back from a situation and say, look, I threw an idea on the table that was mine, but I'm prepared for it to be challenged. I'm prepared to invite some people to this table to make decisions that don't agree with me. I'm I, I'm I'm welcoming that and that takes real courage to do. And I think it also takes real courage to if you've put your ideas on the table and it's yours and you fully believe that it's the right thing to do, but you've got other people around you saying, nah, there's this, you haven't thought about that. We're worried about this aspect. And if you as a leader just ignore all those things, I, I just, yeah. So it takes a lot of courage to, to invite neg- negativity, but, you know, obviously controlled negativity. You invite some challenge, invite people to, to help shape the idea Absolutely. so that it's not, it's not all yours. That constructive criticism is 
crucial, you know, seeing what the cracks are. It's hard for you to see your own cracks in your foundation, right? Yeah. So inviting those other opinions in and those inputs in is going to help you, like you said, be a better leader, be, be a courageous leader. Um, you said, you mentioned working with teams of a hundred. I mean, we're talking about leadership. We'll get further into it, but as how did you lead a team of a hundred? What do you feel like you grasped from that part of your career to sort of guide your way in this book and sort of the next steps? What, what do you tell people? <laughs> you have a hundred people. What, what's going on? Well, I think the thing the thing that's going on is there's not one leader and there's a hundred people like below you. Like you need a leadership team. So you need a leadership team to support a hundred people. And you basically need smaller teams within the bigger team so that um you stand a chance of actually knowing mm -hmm. your team and you've got your leadership team who know the team. Because as much as I would love to say that I knew every single one of the hundred um, team members uh, in such detail that I could know exactly how to motivate them. Of course, I I didn't. Um, and I think that's the thing that you've got as a leader, you need to really understand your team. So you need to have the leadership team around you that knows their teams. And so you need to behave like these smaller, smaller teams that but but in order for that to really work, you've got to have a really strong vision that people understand. And it's not that the leader at the top under, is the only one who understands it and owns it. The vision is the thing that it, everyone can get behind, which means you can have these smaller smaller project teams within the bigger team, but it doesn't mean you're siloed and uh, isolated. No, actually you're pulling in behind this, this bigger vision. So I do think that the, the, leader, the leadership role is to really champion the idea of a vision and to share its ownership and not hold tight to it. Because I think even if it's not just the leadership team, often design teams hold that and don't let anybody else sort of wrestle with it or, you know, uh, I think that it's important that the vision can just help you make decisions. It can help you bring a team together. It can help you communicate to your stakeholders. So it's just, it's just so incredibly vital. But at the same time, if this vision isn't spoken about relentlessly, then it's it and not allowed to evolve so i think there's real there's this is this is the job when you've got a large team is to focus on the vision and how you advocate for that and share its ownership and also you've got your eye on what makes for an effective team because if you often i've seen this so many times one person in and one person out can completely change the dynamics of a team even if it's a hundred one person in one person out you could be done for. So you've got to really understand your team and understand what motivates them and understand what behaviors are changing and shifting because it's not all static. There's so many different things going on in a project. You can have a really amazing three months and then and then be down in the dumps for two and then you have to pull back up again and all of these things. So I think you have to be willing to be tuned into your team, but accept that with a hundred people, you're not going to know everybody. But there has to be leadership team who, generally speaking, um, does know everybody very well, but it's not down to a single person. So I think that's the key, that it's a leadership team rather than a leadership person. And when it's a leadership team, you therefore need to really pull in behind a vision uh, and be relentlessly advocating for it. So you're testing that, but equally know who's accountable for what. Because I think we fall into this classic thing that you either have a single leader who's in charge of everything, accountable for everything. And it's just too much of a burden that they can't make the right decisions. It's impossible to make all the right decisions and be accountable for everything. It's just, it just doesn't work. So I think when you've got this leadership team and people understand what they're accountable for, then they really step up as well. And then they've got the mandate 
to, to have an opinion on something because they're accountable for it. Um, but I think it's a classic case. I've seen it so many times. It's either down to one person and it's too much, or you've got people sitting around the table and everyone, everyone feels accountable for the same things. And it's just such a waste of energy really is. Yeah. So it's either sort of this, I hate the, the term, but dictatorship where it's sort of one person answering all the questions, which is too much on, like you said, that one person as a leader and everybody shouldn't be looking to just one person or this sort of too many chiefs mentality where you can't really end up making a decision in the end because everybody feels like they have this sort of decision to make. It, I can understand that, but I like how you talked about sort of having your finger on the pulse of what what's working and then if you always have this vision, you're always working towards the same goal and not holding it so tight to the chest where it's that same sort of idea of like, put your ideas out there. Is there a crack in the vision? Is there somewhere where our vision can be stronger and listening to everyone? It's such a good point. And, you know, do you feel like trust? I mean, I'm sure you do. How much do you think trust plays into sort of those leadership teams? What do you tell people about trust? and to be able to understand who you can and can't trust in these roles. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, trust plays such a big role, but you have to earn it. Like, you can't assume if you're a leader that you have every, anyone's trust, actually. And you probably, on a daily basis, feel as though you don't have your stakeholders' trust. They're the ones who keep you on your toes. But equally, I think you should just treat the fact that your team can keep you on your toes that's what they can do. But trust goes both ways. So you need to earn it as a leader, but then they need to earn it in terms of, well, they've taken on, on these sort, uh, certain responsibilities. If you've been clear about what it is they are responsible or accountable for, and they're not stepping up and you don't have the, like you don't have a healthy relationship where you can actually talk about it with them, then you don't have a relationship and there is no trust and there is no team. So, yeah, I think it is something that you have to build. It doesn't happen instantly. Um, and I think that, yeah, don't be so hard on yourself if you're in a team where that just, it, it just isn't happening. And it could, it, again, it comes back to that. It could be one person in, one person out who completely shuffles the, yeah. the trust and the relationship uh, dynamics and you have to build, uh, rebuild again. Um, and I think just stay tuned into it. There'll be moments where it's just, it's just hard and, you know, there might be someone like one individual having a really tough personal time and you have to, you know, put the support up for them, um, for them to get through it. Uh, and yeah, and all these things. So I think as a leader, you just need to be tuned in. You don't need to know all the details of everything, but just be willing to be tuned in and tune out when you know you have to make like pull up to make some decisions and drill down when you need to. But it's this constant zooming in and zooming out, which I think is a is a skill in itself. Yes, absolutely. Uh, trusting your gut would be part of that sort of, you're feeling like there's something off, trust it. What, what is it? You know, yeah, that's a, maybe someone that's is just having a bad day, right? Or a bad week, right? Exactly. Yeah, and not knowing all the details. And when you move up into leadership positions, you are not going to know all the details. So you have to trust that your team does. Um, so, you know, there's this, I, there's this concept of don't sweat the small stuff. And I agree with that, but somebody needs to. But somebody it can't has be to. Yeah, somebody needs to, but then they need the support. They need to then, like, they don't have the perspective. If they're sweating the small stuff, which somebody needs to be doing at some point, then they, you need to give them, like, pull them back up and give them the perspective and then let them go back down and do the detail and then pull them back up again because they won't naturally do that because they're so in the detail. It's hard to be 
in both places at once. And again, as a leader, you just need to tune in to, well, this person needs some more perspective now. They're lost in the details. I need them to be there for a certain amount of time, but now I need to pull them back up and give them support with understanding what it is they're contributing to. And then over here, I need to focus on, so I think that's the thing. It's a bit like a conductor of an orchestra or something where you're just having to to um, know where to look um, and trust your team around you that they're going to alert you to, to things that you can't see. Absolutely. The the thing that I find interesting is that you you said you touched on reaching out to people that naturally your network sort of became women. Um, what do you think in throughout your career and even now is something that is sort of facing women in leadership? We talk about this a lot on the podcast that, you know, women are incredible at working hard at understanding different perspectives, but what is it that's keeping us from staying in leadership roles? And then what is it that's helping us stay in leadership roles? What would you think are, you know, the struggles we still are facing and what's working for us and what should we lean into more um, for just women in leadership in general? It's a great question. I honestly think, and I'm not sure I can speak for all women if I'm perfectly honest, but I honestly think our biggest stumbling block, our biggest challenge is ourselves because we put such Mm -hmm. high pressure on ourselves and we are our, our, our own worst critic, I, I believe. Um, certainly there's there's conditioning around the environments. You know, are you even invited to the table? And if you're invited, do you is it invited with the mandate to speak? Because there's certainly- Are you heard? Can you speak? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were meetings where I was told, yeah, you can come, but you're not allowed to speak kind of thing. I mean, there are others certainly where I was more than able to speak, but initially there was, you know, some of those transitioning times where, yeah, you Mm -hmm. can come and get some exposure to this, but don't say a word. And that's obviously um, not good for your self-esteem or anything. Um, But I also just think that it's also women bringing up other women, because I think there's been some old school um, female leaders who have fought like tooth and nail to get to where they are and haven't necessarily felt as though they need to bring up the next generation of women because they've fought so hard to get there so they in a way want to see you fight to get there as well and I just think that other we we just need to just drop that guard and say yeah enough enough with that That it was hard for me so it should be hard for you no like that's gotta go I completely agree yeah but also make it easier for men to support women coming in because I think there are there are certainly um, male leaders who want to invite who are, are finally understanding that having more diverse voices around the table just it's smarter because you actually get to decisions faster because even if in that room, everyone's agreeing and everything's hunky-dory, you go out to your team and you discover all these things you haven't thought about and it just costs you time and money and energy and all of that. So I do think that people are realizing now that actually if we've got those those diverse voices at the at the decision-making table, it just saves some of that work going outwards. Right. Plus it means that it motivates uh, a diverse group of people to want to be in leadership roles when they can see that that um, decision-making table looking like, well, they can recognize something, they can recognize themselves, they can see themselves there. I think that's, that part, that is part of it. But I think certainly in my situation, I've had to really work at confidence. I've had to really work at saying, you know what, I would, I would really like to attend that meeting. I think it's important that I'm there because then I can share that information directly. It's not second or third hand information. Um, so I think that a lot of the time I had to push to be in certain situations and there was kind of this guilt associated with that. And I do think that if leaders then just go, you know what, 
we need these uh, these diverse voices at the table, and we're and with that we're giving them the mandate to speak. And where if they're not feeling confident in that situation, I'm going as the person in charge of that seat uh, that session. I'm going to invite them to speak because sometimes people need to be invited to to share their opinion, and you need to be again alert to that in in a in a in a boardroom situation. You know who is being very quiet. Who haven't we heard from? Um, and you know, have we really invited them to speak? Because maybe that's what's missing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that it makes a lot of sense. And you talked about you. I've definitely been in the meetings where they're like, "Well, you can come, but like, you know, be the wallflower." But there's always there's also been plenty of times where no one said that, and I didn't feel like I could speak. And maybe 50% of the time that was on me and I could have, or 50% of the time that was the environment and I was reading the room correctly, but being invited to speak going, Jeanette, do you have anything to say here? Is there anything that you think um, we need to know that maybe you had researched or sort of tapping into that and making sure that someone understands their voices um, heard and, and needed? I think that's a really good point. Um, do you have any sort of advice for younger women sort of starting out in our career that may have fear of being able to sort of your mom, you know, balancing family life and balancing architecture. I know you're in a different aspect of architecture, but you're still very much designing our world of leadership. So I still see it as the same. Um, do you have any advice for sort of uh, younger women that are trying to sort of balance the two? And how do you think you best balance your sort of family life and business life? Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I for um, I I had I've got two boys, and um, yeah, I was quite late in having in my my children, and you know that was a conscious decision. But at the same time, I think I had other people around me saying, "So we're assuming you're not going to have kids. Are you one of those career women kind of thing?" And I've I've never been like that. I've always wanted uh, children, but I just want I wanted it to I wanted I wanted both. I didn't want to just be a mom, and I didn't want to just have a career. I wanted both. And I recall, I've, I can I can picture these um, uh, like interviews with Michelle Obama, where she is somebody who's obviously an incredible uh, female leader who's outspoken and and courageous and confident and all these things. And I recall she was very very definitively saying, "You cannot have both. You just have you just choose your time when it's this and when it's that." So I do think there's an element of um, just choosing your moments to say, look, career is important to me, but I'm also, I really want to have a family and have children and enjoy that. So I took um, a year out for maternity leave twice with my children. And that was a decision that I didn't even question, like that was going to be something that I was going to do. And yeah, so with that decision in mind, I was thinking, well, how does that work with the projects? I'm not really sure. Um, and in fact, the first time I was pregnant, I was so stressed with my work. I didn't even realize I was pregnant. And as soon as I did realize I was pregnant, I immediately changed the way I was working. And I just, I had gotten into such a rut with working so hard that I didn't realize what I was doing to my body. And, but the moment, the second I realized it could potentially be harming another human being, I completely changed. And it's and in a way it saddens me that it got to that point that I had to, you know, so now I, I'm a, I'm a really strong advocate for women looking after themselves and um, from a very young age, because it really, it does, it does count. So um, really like setting up some boundaries to protect your energy and set up the boundaries in terms of, well, when I choose to have a family and if I choose to take a year off, or if I choose to take how many months off, then that's my decision. 
and my employer needs to respect that. And if I'm clear about that and I've set the intentions uh, and I know it's good for me, it'll be ultimately good for the project because I will show up in the right way. Um, yeah. Uh, so I do think that setting some boundaries, looking after yourself um, in terms of your health and your mental well-being is absolutely key. And it's also it sends signals to the other people in your team as well that this is important. And because we do have to do a cultural shift in our profession there's just too many I was thinking about this the other day in terms of you know I would absolutely burn myself out at university and I recall there were like uh, there were some male colleagues who were two years above and they would come to me in the studio and say do you know you've got to really pace yourself because you this is like this goes on for years right are you are you sure like you need to pace yourself and I wasn't listening I was thinking but I'm, I'm just I'm loving it I'm working hard this is what you do but I honestly wish that I'd listened to that early on because I do think I've I had conditioned myself, which many many of us in this profession have done at university, and it just carries on until something else triggers that you stop, like the fact that I realized I was pregnant. Um, and now I and now that I've had the time out of architecture on maternity leave and come back in, that's when you see the perspective. You see that people this are sitting. This is madness. In, this, this is madness. <laughs> Don't do this to yourself. And also you see that actually people are sitting in meetings, just talking around and around in circles. You're thinking, you have no idea what it's taken for me to get to this one hour meeting. I'm here. I want to make it count. And this so it's really done in five minutes. I know. So you just have this completely new understanding of time and, and how precious it is and how to use it more effectively. And I think that if women knew that when they took time out like that and came back in, that they were going to shine this light on the situation that mm -hmm. no one else can see, they would realize it's a superpower because it really is a superpower to juggle so many things, to get some perspective, to really be super productive when you can be. I think that's um, that can be, yeah, an incredible thing that you, you can leverage so long as you've set these boundaries to begin with. And I know I'm making it sound easier than it it might be because it's easier to say in hindsight for sure. Right, right. Um, but if I had my time again, I would definitely um, be advocating for that and certainly leaders need to be the ones setting the ground rules here you know we need to send you home you are not right. staying here right. doing that extra detail just isn't going to matter right now it's just not wait it can wait you know tomorrow morning the detail will look the same if not probably better let's be honest probably, you'll do it in half the time and, and probably better. <laughs> yeah. i say yeah. it to my sister all the time I'm, she's a doctor and she's also a mom of two kids and my other sister is a teacher and a leader and works for um counseling in schools and she has two kids and i'm like how how do y'all do it like i'm like i'm in art i'm doing work at the firm all day how am I going to have time for a child? And they're like, you just figure it out. Like it's the, like, and I think the big part of that is what exactly what you said. You see time differently, right? Like you use your time, time is precious and you use it a more in a more precious way, right? That meeting that's taking an hour, you're sitting there itching and wanting to crawl out of your skin because you're like, oh my gosh, we could have done this in 15 minutes. And there's four other things I could have done now. You're it's, it's, that's a very good point. I've never seen it like that. You're just seeing time in a more, clear um way it's really funny this is such a silly analogy but i think it's a good point i remember watching um the world series excuse me i remember watching the world series last year and they were talking about one of the players from the astros or something uh having children his wife had children and one of the commentators said you know all the players play better after they have kids and the other commentator goes well, why do you think that is and he goes I don't know the science behind it, 
but I think perspective, perspective. And then the following year, I remember noting that so clearly in my mind. And I was like, I'm going to watch that player. I want to see if that's true. And it was true. The next year they won the world series and that player was a big part of it. And I think it speaks to exactly what you're saying, you know, and it can work for men and women, especially women, but um, perspective is everything, especially sort of aligning your priorities about what, what is the most important in that moment, I think is really true. Um, and gosh, I think we all can relate to the fact of not taking care of ourselves. And you're absolutely right, Tanya. We teach this in school. We, and it almost, we do it to ourselves in school. I was getting kidney stones. I was losing ridiculous amounts of weight. My mom would come in town and make me go eat. And I'd be like, I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to eat. Like, it's silly. And, you know, I hope it doesn't take until most people have children, but I think sadly it does. How do we sort of remind ourselves, you know, I guess we talk about it like this, right? <laughs> that yeah, we need more role models, more female or just more leaders generally who, who basically, and I think when, when people are stuck on this kind of late night treadmill, they literally need to be taken off the treadmill. Somebody needs to take them off. They can't take themselves off. So I do think that as leaders, people in positions of authority looking out and going, I love that you're committed. I really do. I really acknowledge you for this, but I'm going to take you off this treadmill because you're not going to be productive for the next two months if you do this now. So although you think you're doing something that's amazing for the project, uh, in the long term, you're not. And I don't want to encourage you to do that. But if I'm going to take you off that treadmill, I appreciate that those three things aren't going to get done. So I'm either going to take it to somebody else or I'm going to negotiate that those things don't need to be done now. So this is where you need courageous leadership to step in and I'm get- saying, This is why you're a courageous leader. I'm like, oh my God, you flip Because you have to say no to a client. You have to say, no, uh, we're going to miss that part of the deadline or we're going to do this or we're going to do that, but it's going to be better when we do it and it requires some pretty tough negotiations um but it has it has to be done and it, the results will be better and there needs to be this culture of uh you know your team members coming to you to say look this has just been lumped on my lap but i've already had these other 10 things that i already wasn't going to get done how on earth am i going to get this and you know it's all very easy to turn a blind eye and say i didn't see that i didn't i didn't understand just get it done or you can say, oh, I appreciate, right, now I see it. Now let's negotiate between ourselves what what we can do, what, what we, we can do? share, and what I can go back to the client and say, this isn't going to get done today. Yeah. But you, you said something so interesting there, and I'm going to forever remember this. It's a part of the leader saying something to the architect, to the designer, whereas I feel like in a lot of cases, because I know this has happened. I'm not doing it to get a pat on the back, but if you're working late, you're rewarded, right? Like rewarded in the sense of like, oh, Jeanette's working 14 hour days. Tanya's working 16 hour days. Tanya's sleeping like six hours a night per week, four hours a night per week. I mean, she's been killing herself, but really that shouldn't be the rewarded behavior, right? And so it's the leader also saying, the treadmill analogy is perfect. Let me take you off here. <laughs> I, I see your hard work saying that, I see it. I appreciate you. I appreciate your drive, but you know, let's slow it down because that's not sustainable. <laughs> and then we don't want to set the standard that everybody else needs to work like that. And what can we do to make it not be that, but that doesn't happen very often. It's no. such a good point. It's such mm. a good point. So sort of taking the step back as a leader and being courageous enough to say, Hey, I appreciate it. I mean, what leader's ever going to tell you to slow down? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
Yeah, but in a way, slowing down to speed up because if if it's done in a smart way, and again, this requires the vision to be strong enough that you can make those snap decisions that will meet to, to somebody else might look as though it's going off course, but you know it's not because you've got this strong idea of the vision. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think we can wrap up with a final question, but I think this is super important, Tanya. What do you think from a day-to-day basis now that you've switched into this part of your career is the most rewarding part? Like, what do you go home with at night that just makes you feel fulfilled? And um, what do you think you'll end up taking away from this in the end? Um, that of your journey that you've sort of dove into at this point? Well, I, I love this idea that leadership can just unlock so much potential in other people and in projects. And I, this is, I, I love the fact that I can, I can start influencing other leaders now and share my experience. And I'm still learning, like, I don't know it all, but I'm sharing my experience and I'm absorbing what I can from, from others and I love the fact that I can see like sparks in someone's eye when they when they realize that they've just shifted like they I, I've been, um, for example, there's a few leaders I've been working with where they would come to me and say, I've just sh- I've really was- sorted out this accountability issue. You know, I've the, the, this contractor was leaning on me to do these things that were completely beyond what I should have been doing. So I've offloaded that back with all the instructions, with all the caveats to say I'm here to support. That's not what I'm accountable for. And the fact that their shoulders were just that much lighter, they were beaming actually when they realized that actually they were carrying too much burden and it wasn't mm-hmm. serving them or the project. I love those moments when I can just see that others are realizing, oh, there's a there's some strategies I can put in place. There's some tools. It's not like I have to just wing it. It's not that I have to like go through the experience like hard firsthand. I can actually learn from others around me uh, and I can fast track my way to this and not have to to risk burnout, not have to risk harming myself or my, or my, or my team. So I love the fact that I can influence other leaders. In fact, I've got this mission that I want to support and develop a hundred formidable built environment leaders this year. So uh, who knows whether I get to a hundred, but I'd love to really influence that because I know that it will have a ripple effect on the teams and the projects, because ultimately that's what it's about, that we get better built environments and the people working on it enjoy it because they've got leaders who understand and acknowledge them for what they're doing and are pulling them up with them. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I can put like a little arrow over me and be like, influenced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been writing so many things. I'm like, I will shift this. I will shift this. So, I mean, if I'm just talking to you for an hour and I feel just all of these incredible aspects of leadership that I feel like I would never be able to sort of see the perspective and open my eyes to without you talking to me. I know that a hundred is going to be easily, easily obtainable for you. Um, I just thank you so much for just coming here and, and being courageous enough to share your journey and how you got there. Um, I remember asking you in our last chat, if you felt courageous and you, I don't not, you can share your answer, but I think of you as an extremely courageous person. So um, I appreciate you so much for coming here and just sharing your wealth of knowledge. It, it's, it matters so much to me. And I know everybody that will be listening to this. Well, thank you so much for having me. And honestly, yeah, I'd, I'd love to think that if people could just understand their potential and just reach out to people around them that um, they respect or, you know, that they can actually ask for help. Asking for help actually is a sign of courage. 
not a sign of weakness. So yeah, that's, that's the key. Thank you, thank you.